On this episode of Yachting Yarns, Kyle and Marianne Webb share their stories of nearly 20 years at sea. Along the way, they've lost a boat, they've faced cyclones, a tsunami, and survived some very unexpected dramas. Kyle is a retired commercial airline pilot. Marianne is an IT expert with a degree in marine biology. They walked away from their successful careers and set off to see the world. Before Kyle was anything in my world and had never heard of him, I had decided I wanted to learn to sail, but I was very unsuccessful at it. So I was in my 30s. I kept joining like weekend sailing classes or something like that, but there was always too much wind or not enough wind. And so I had this dream. I wanted to go sailing, but I'd never really done it. and I never had a boat or anything like that. And when I met Kyle, he had a boat, but was on one of the lakes in the US. It's a big lake, Lake Erie. I had done really not much sailing, certainly not big passages and stuff like that. So I remember once we first came together and we both started traveling with his little boat, we, we kind of slowly learned together. And I remember our first overnight passage. I remember our first offshore passage. It felt like we were taking these baby steps as we learned the boat and each other and, and you know, how to sail and everything else. And, and, I, and I remember being really difficult to even be able to sleep or anything like that. Like really seemed like such a big deal. <laughs> imagination can drive you crazy, really. But even just things like uh, the height of the waves when you're used to a little lake, any kind of wave can seem crazy. And then slowly that wave is nothing. And then, you know, your confidence grows, your understanding of the boat grows. So what was your first big trip? Our first our first big trip, uh, once we sort of left, was we sailed from North Carolina to Antigua, which took us 17 days. And that was the first time we'd ever, you know, sailed to a tropical island and talking with them accents, mom, things like that. <laughs> well, that must be a bit confused because you've got two different accents. I must wonder where you're from. <laughs> we get that a lot. A lot of people guess Marianne is from Canada or from South Africa, and I get, you know, I get Canada and America unless I'm trying hard to have a different mm. accent. But. And then strangely enough, Kyle is really good at imitating accents, whereas I'm lousy at it. So when we first met, he was living in the States and I was living in Scotland. But when he would come and visit me, people would instantly believe he was the local and I was the foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a bit confusing. So tell me a bit about your boat. What sort of boat do you have? Our first two boats were monohulls about for six years and then we bought a catamaran after that and we had that one for about six years and then we bought this boat we've been on this boat for nine years now which is also a catamaran so two monohulls two catamarans okay you're happy with the catamaran yes we've uh We've definitely become converts. After having both, uh, we seem to definitely be sticking with the catamarans. Particularly because it's not just a boat to go like cruising on the weekend or something with. It's yeah. actually our home as well. The catamaran gives a lot more living space. If we were ever to kind of go back and live on the land and, and get a smaller boat, it would probably be a monohull, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Monohulls are a bit more fun to sail, a bit more feedback and feel to them. But it's nice with the catamarans to sort of up higher and you can get the 360 degree view from the salon when you're in anchorages or whatever sort of get an idea of what's going on instead of just looking at a porthole at the sky and so you know if it's cloudy or if it's sunny or not but otherwise you got to go upstairs to find out what the weather's like and what's going on cruising wise there's a lot of advantages as well a lot shallower generally and for now a catamaran is what suits us just perfectly hmm. so about 20 years ago you decided you didn't like living on land you decided you want to leave the rat race Exactly. <laughs> so I think it was more of a slow dawning than, a, than an instant realisation. I, I kind of was lucky enough to work in a couple of jobs that had me living in different countries. And from that, I kind of got the travel bug. I love visiting new places. And then while I'd be quite happy to kind of fly around, that's a very expensive way to do it. So if you can just take your home with you and visit all these wonderful places, that seemed to be something that I liked the idea of eventually. But it took us a while to come to that. 
initially I just wanted to cross the Atlantic once in my life, like a bucket list item. Mm. And initially I just wanted to kind of cruise up and down the coast of the mm. States or one little area. Yeah. And then the two kind of ideas mel- melded together and suddenly we're crossing oceans like as a... Yeah. For myself, I kind of realized that life wasn't necessarily things and, and it was... You know, being able to have sunsets and go places and see new things. And um, a boat seems like a nice way to do that. I mean, you know, the coastline of the world is very large, so we have access to all sorts of places. And eventually we got to the point where we started reading an article or something about somewhere exotic and start thinking, you know, we could actually figure out how to get there. You know, we just have to figure out what to do all the way in between here and there, and we can make this happen. We had a long period of a very big spreadsheet of what steps we needed to do to get us to the goals that we wanted. So we had the dream. And then once we made a plan, it seemed to kind of just click into place really easily. Yeah, you just got to do the plan. You've got to yeah. do it. Once you've made a plan, you've got to do it. Really, the hard part is just deciding to do it. Once you've really decided to do it, you're making the plan and sticking to it. And, and particularly like when saving, it's easy to get distracted and think, oh, I want to buy one of these. I want to buy one of these. I want to get a new car and all that. But once you decide you know, this is what the money is for, then it becomes you know a lot easier to just say, we're going to save our paycheck this year. <laughs> you know? 19 years. Which parts of the world have you been to? Have you been to the snow? I, I read something about you getting prepared to go to the Antarctic. Did you get there? Uh, yes, but not with the boat. When Carl and I first met, I was um, trying to work out my next step in life. And I had been offered a PhD in Norway to study species of cold coral that kind of tend to like to grow on the oil rigs out there. So that was kind of interesting. And I'd also been offered to do a PhD in Antarctica, looking at the krill distribution and the, what was influential for the whale feeding and everything else. So when I met Kyle and decided to give all that up and go off and live in America and start sailing, he promised me that we would get to both those places somehow. So we did manage to sail to Norway. Like there's no way we're taking a catamaran to Antarctica. That needs a lot more serious heavy duty boats. So um, he took me on a cruise, <laughs> which was very nice. It's a beautiful place. Well, that was my sort of last vacation while I had, you know, benefits at the company. I said, I'm going to take a, going to take a vacation. We're going to see Antarctica because it's, yeah, it's there. But you have managed to see a lot of the world sailing to some very interesting places. If you look at where we've been from the US, we basically had crossed the Atlantic and we did a little bit of Europe and the Mediterranean and then as far north as Norway. Uh, mostly, again, we're a U.S. registered boat and wherever you travel, you have to kind of manage the laws of the land. Um, so Europe has a combined rule that if you're there for more than 18 months, you have to pay duty on your boat. I think we were there for about three years and we had to kind of find ways to keep leaving yeah. without having to go too far. So we took a trip to Norway, which helped reset the clock. And then we took a trip to um, Turkey, which helped reset the clock. Um, and enabled us to spend the rest of the time just kind of sailing around. And Greece was lovely. All those Mediterranean countries are absolutely stunning. Spain and Italy and Turkey. There's just so much to see and do there. Oh, the Mediterranean is, it's beautiful. It's, it's different. I mean, it's definitely crowded. And I think it's probably fairly expensive, uh, particularly for catamarans as a surcharge for, for you know, the extra haul everywhere you go. But, the, but there's so much history that goes back thousands of years and and you know being able to go to the parthenon and being able to see things like that you know go to delphi and you know places in italy and all that stuff it's just amazing Mm -hmm. so uh we really loved it there and certainly the greek islands really are you know heaven i mean they're just paradise right it's like it's it's funny because they don't you know they're kind of dry 
so you don't get that kind of lush green palm tree stuff but it's just never-ending sun and the beautiful water and it's mm. yeah it's it's an amazing place and everybody's so nice well greece especially is one of those places where you are with the community as soon as you arrive the the harbor of any little village is like the town square of any major city or something like that this is where everything is happening so all the restaurants are lying the harbor all the little markets kind of by the harbor um so you're instantly part of local life and people chat to you and you can sit having a meal watching your boat if you want to and it's it's just a very very special place mm. and of course the language is difficult for us the alphabet's different everything else we did we did a little bit and and once you're off the kind of main tourist tracks which boaters get to do all the time you can't expect people to speak english yeah. they kind of start some interesting stories of their own where you're kind of trying to mine what it is you want i'm, I'm sure like google translate probably helps with all sorts of things nowadays but that wasn't available when we went so, mm. <laughs> so how long did you spend sailing around the mediterranean we were in the actual mediterranean for uh, about a year or so we, we we crossed the north atlantic we landed in uh, the british isles so we you know spent the first you know summer or whatnot sailing up ireland to scotland and then spent the winter in Scotland. And then we, you know, spent the next year we went to Norway and then came back and then spent the next winter in England. And then we went to France after that. So we were in Europe for about four years, but I think two and a half of it was in the UK um, for the most part. Did you ever come across the same people who might have been doing the same thing as you? Not really in Europe, no. Was, much more so since yeah. we kind of hit Mexico and, and the Pacific, much more common to kind of keep crossing paths with the same people. Yeah, it was, it was surprising in Europe, especially we, a lot of people seem, there didn't seem to be a lot of people cruising around and people seemed sort of surprised by, oh, you, you know, you came from far away and <laughs> it seemed like everybody was a local boater and it was kind of strange. So you had a lovely time in the Mediterranean, obviously really enjoyed your time there. And then you went off to the place where so many sailors go, the Caribbean islands. What were your impressions? On the one hand, I was so happy to be travelling to what seemed like such exotic locations that I would never have really imagined I would get to. On the other hand, personally, there's very few places in the Caribbean I really felt like I enjoyed. There's still quite division between the kind of local black community and then the cruising pub going tourist kind of community and it often felt very uncomfortable like I didn't feel in the Caribbean you were we were really able to connect with locals there was definitely kind of them and us kind of feeling about the life there that's interesting um, whereas you know we've been to places like you know the South Pacific Islands and it's been very different very much more welcoming very much more involved in the community while I love the Caribbean and I wouldn't tell anybody not to go i think definitely it's not my favorite place the caribbean is beautiful but it's also very crowded and it's very crowded with tourists and you know mostly american sailors and there's a lot of people that sort of have the attitude that you know this place is here for my own personal entertainment and so you know go ahead and entertain me instead of being in a situation where you're in somebody else's country and you're trying to respect their culture and understand their history and whatnot i think that caused a lot of the friction that marianne was talking about where the locals are tired of getting treated like their servants to the tourists. The tourists, for some reason, are acting like they think they're in Vegas or something, and it's, you know, it's not somebody's home. For me, when I visit a new country, it's not just the geography and, and, and that that's important, but it's the culture and the feel of the place and, and getting to know the communities. I just feel personally that in the Caribbean, that wasn't really open to us. That community part was never, never felt open to us. Yeah. And that's probably not going to change any time in the near future either. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So after a wonderful trip around the Mediterranean and then 
your time spent in the Caribbean islands, you kept going west and whole new adventures in the Pacific Ocean. Obviously the Panama Canal, we've gone across to Hawaii, we've done a little bit of the west coast of the US, not as much as we want to yet, we haven't made it to Alaska. And then in the South Pacific, we've kind of been to Chile and to Easter Island and most of the regions, at least of French Polynesia. And now, you know, New Zealand and Australia. So we haven't really done anything like further west than here or anything. Yeah, not the west of Western Australia. Or anything north, directly north of Australia either. So you're halfway around the world. My last count, we're about 70% of the way through the longitude mm. and 60% of the latitude on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes your seasoned sailors now. So, of course, every seasoned sailor has to make that, that trip through the Panama Canal. How did you go? The Panama Canal is definitely it's the big show you know so uh when you show up when you first start approaching the canal the radio starts to crackle and there's so much traffic and it really does remind me just listening to the radio and listening to the you know the guy on the radio it sound it reminds me of going into new york you know airspace on a blizzard day you know it's busy it's you know the guy's rattling off instructions left and right he's not pausing in between to get acknowledgments and there's you know 70 or 100 ships and they're all trying to coordinate their pilot times and their transit times and when you're going to pick up this and where you're going to anchor uh and then here we come with this little boat you know like a mouse walking in you know through a forest or something and they say you know you call up and say i just want to I just want to go to the marine on the side. They're like, yeah, just make sure you pass in front of this boat. So your pilot training would have helped you a little bit. It, it did. It was. It was certainly. It gave me a sense of respect for the people who, you know, control everything on the radio. And then the the canal itself, they kind of scare you with. There's a lot of paperwork to do, and you have to, you know, have an ad measure come out and measure the vessel. And there's rules and yeah, da da. And and so it's very intimidating to sort of go into that machine and say, okay, we're trying to get a transit through the canal. We hired an agent just to sort of help with that. And he was brilliant. He did a lot of stuff. It's not outside the scope of, you know, somebody who's normally uh, competent with paperwork, but he knew people that had like, we hired line handlers. A lot of people use their friends for line handlers and, you know, boats trade each other and they go back and forth. But, you know, we didn't know when we we're going to go through and we got kind of short notice. So it's like, we'll just hire some line handlers. And it wasn't it wasn't expensive. I think we paid, you know, $50 a day for each of them or something like that. But they were brilliant because they did this all week, every week, and they knew what to do. And every lot keeper would change the plan on us at the last minute. They say, we're well, going, you know, you're going port side this time. They say, no, never mind, you're going starboard side. And the line handlers just did it for us. So all I had to do was just drive the boat through the canal. And it turned out to be a very pleasant trip. But I will say, like, the expectation of going through the Panama Canal, we were really quite anxious. We'd read all sorts of stories about how it had gone wrong for people. Mm. For most people, it's a very uneventful passage. It's just, you know, inspiring that you're there and you and you you get to do it. But it's it mostly goes by quite uneventfully but leading up to that that's not the story that you hear you hear the stories for how things have gone wrong and we were very nervous and we've done plenty of other canals in lots of other countries but this was our first canal, canal with the big boys <laughs> i guess and it went perfectly fine and and i don't think i'd have any fears about doing it a second time well, not at all. the whole idea that you're on a bicycle surrounded by trucks Probably the worst part of it. It leads you into the canal behind the ship, so you're kind of taking up the like the extra corner that the ship doesn't quite take up. <laughs> so 
got the sterns of these giant ships or the bows of these giant ships looming over you and you're down there with your little lines and you know definitely when they when they start moving you know it when the propeller starts propeller <laughs> wash hits you and there was delays and whatnot somebody had engine trouble in front of us and we had to wait a little bit uh so we finally got to the pacific i think it was about one o'clock in the morning but still you know when the doors opened up and you're here in the pacific you know it was like wow we actually there's a whole other ocean just opened up to us right now so so you said you enjoyed the pacific what parts of the pacific did you enjoy well, the Pacific is huge. I mean, we I personally really like the Tuamotus in French Polynesia. Uh, there's places where you can just go out and have a, you know, one of those crazy blue aquamarine lagoons all to yourself and a little island with three palm trees on it. You can just sit there and listen to the breeze and be in the sun. And it's, it's beautiful. Twice we passed through the French Polynesia kind of during the Haver yeah, yeah. festival season. So as we passed through the little islands, people were kind of practicing and learning, ready for the big festival in Tahiti. And then twice we got to be in Tahiti during the festival where you see all these amazing, like Broadway quality performances with hundreds of dancers just absolutely fantastic because there's a lot more distance between the islands how different was your your travels around the pacific to say through the caribbean i mean it's really the same but just a little bit further in between really so the the whole maybe the biggest difference is preparation and and food provisioning really yeah Um, because you're unlikely to find a supermarket for weeks or months yeah, so, so many of the places we go, you know, you, I mean, you may have to sail for two or three days to get to an island and then two or three days to get to the next island. And, you know, they'll have one store and that one store gets restocked once every two weeks by a ship or whatever. So depending on which day you get there, they'll either have stuff or they won't. So you may end up finding strange things like we went for months just looking for canned tomatoes and couldn't find anyone that sold canned tomatoes. So you have to sort of be ready to, to be able to make what you have from what's available from Whereas that's rarely a problem in the Caribbean, right? I would have thought the world was flush with canned tomatoes. I... <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of things did you like to cook on the boat? Who's the cook? Marianne's definitely the cook. Yeah, I'm the she's, cook. She's outclassed me way back when. So um, Not really because of my class of, of cooking, but really because my quality of washing up is not sufficient, according <laughs> to somebody here. So washer upper, and I'm the official cook. I also do the provisioning. We're not terribly adventurous, but we do try and have a bit of variety and we try and keep it healthy. So when we can buy fresh produce locally, we do. Carl's a huge fan of pamplemousse in in the in French Polynesia, the giant kind of sweet or less, less acidic, at least, kind of grapefruit. We are the world's lousiest fishermen. So we the only fish we really have are like a canned tuna aboard. So far, we've only, we're up to 10 fish in the whole time we've been sailing. 10 fish? 10 fish. What, <laughs> what about flying fish? Don't they come onto your boat? Yes. Those are all a bit too count. tiny. They don't, Yeah, we've never tried eating one of those. So you just throw yeah. them back? Try and catch them before they die and throw them back. But occasionally we'll find a dry one in the dinghy or something like that weeks later. But yeah, so cooking wise, we have a good understanding of what kind of dried food lasts and how to, how to make it very different. We do a little bit of sprouting so we can have kind of fresh greens to throw into a sandwich or into a salad or something. Yeah. And then once you find yourself arriving at a village, normally you can either buy or trade for fresh supplies it works pretty well in one of your articles i I love your expression that you'd stop sometimes and stuff the kitty yes really your savings bank right so it was very easy for kyle to commute from any place that had a kind of major airline route between the us and wherever we went to visit almost impossible to maintain my job 
um, in these remote places where there was going to be no real reliable internet and stuff like that. So I quit work and Kyle maintained his job for several years. We'd be sail to some new place and then he would fly off to work and I would do all the kind of boring jobs, the grocery, the laundry, the little bit of boat maintenance, whatever. And and then we'd just keep moving like that. But eventually, you know, it would be winter time or it would be some good reason that we can't sail for some period of time. So wherever we found ourselves where it was legal, I would seek out a contract position. So a nice short-term job to put some money in the bank. And pretty soon, Carl would already have it spent before I'd earned it. New sail for the boat. It helped me like make friends and have a purpose. And you were living like locals. If you were working there, you'd have been living like locals. Yeah. Well, that's true. Once Kyle actually got to retire officially um, and then we hit the Pacific, then neither of us have worked since. For a long time, he flew mostly on the east coast of the US while we were living and sailing there. So he'd spend all his time looking out the window and picking out anchorages for us to use in the future. That's handy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Earlier you mentioned laundry. I know it's a mundane subject. Housekeeping isn't exactly exotic, but you must have it down to a fine art by now. That's that's right. I mean, some boats do have laundry. And um, when we've been in really remote places, we've kind of done laundry by hand with rain court rainwater. But we have enough kind of bedding and clothing and everything else that we can just wait till we find a laundry machine. And that's how we do it. Sometimes that's a little traipse through town with a little wheelie cart. Sometimes it's carrying a big bag on our shoulders <laughs> trying to find the laundry. Sometimes it's a service that comes and picks things up and drops them off. And uh, luckily here at the Boatworks, they have free laundry machines for all of their paying guests so that's a bonus yes <laughs> you land the first thing you do when you land is you go hello how are you nice to be here where's your laundry exactly <laughs> well, it's, it's funny when meet friends and they have a house ashore somewhere the first thing we want is a hot shower can we use your laundry machine <laughs> um, i can understand that whether or not you include an appliance particularly a big appliance like a washing machine would have been a big decision when you're kitting out your boat yep Yep. That's uh, a choice that each sailor makes, what they're going to have aboard their boat and what they're going to go without. And that's one of the things that we've gone without. But we still managed to survive. <laughs> <laughs> survive and thrive. Now, there's a very interesting story about how you came to be in Australia. Yeah. Um, visiting Australia as a foreign cruising ship is a little bit of a, a nightmare. A lot of cruisers just bypass Australia for that very reason. We've both been to Australia before by air and love Australia. So we're definitely like, we're trying to find a reason why we can go to Australia. And a way to do it. Although we're not poor by any means, we're not rich either. And we have a set of funds set aside for our cruising life. And when that's gone, I guess we have to stop cruising. So we're very frugal in our spending. And arriving in Australia, that seemed impossible to know. They'll say things like, the biosecurity people want to come and inspect your boat they have the right to tear it apart completely and the fee for that privilege you'll be charged by the hour for however long it takes them i'm like well is that going to be an hour's work or is that going to be two days worth of work nobody's prepared to tell you anything up front so that made me very uncertain some unknown expense to visit a country that i'd already seen um and eventually we stumbled across the go west rally yeah which is organised by an Australian sailor who just tries to make it easy for people to visit Australia. And he coordinates with all these government agencies, join the rally for this fee, and all of these things will be included in the price automatically. Oh, that's what you want. 
Exactly. They just so, average the price out amongst the, the group of boats. Mm -hmm. So you know what it's going to cost you. So we decided to hop on the rally. And actually, it could not have been better for us. So not only did we join the rally, which is not a typical rally. It's not like everybody kind of sets off and leaves and, and arrives in the same place or anything else. It's very open. But we chose to go arrive at Bundaberg in time for kind of the rally parties and information events, which is all very well organised. John Hembrow does a really good job of it. We went through biosecurity with really just some friendly people chatting to us with no real ripping apart the boat or any concerns like that. So that was... It turned out to take about a half an hour. We also won a bunch of prizes unexpectedly as part of the membership of the rally. So we got a free haul out. So this rally ended up costing us very, very little, if anything, in the end. So we, we consider ourselves extremely lucky to have come across it. And that was just a random decision to decide that you would do this. This is part of the cruising life is you just make decisions on the run. Yeah, I mean, there's many reasons to make a plan. Yeah, things change or somebody will explain, oh, you have to see this place. You mustn't miss it. It's really amazing. So then the plan changes here and there and you just end up spending oh, a bit longer here. And of course, now plans completely changed because of COVID. Yeah. So there's no way we expected to still be in Australia right now. Where were you when COVID hit? So we're staring about Tasmania and we sailed from Tasmania to Lord Howe Island. You know, it was a little bit in the news at Lord Howe. And after we left Lord Howe, we landed in Queensland, sort of turned on our phones for the first time. And I think it was two days or something after we got in. And they that's when they shut the borders and, and all that happened. So we were very lucky we were in Queensland, who at the time the restriction was just stay within the state, don't leave the state. Okay, that's fine. It's a huge state mm -hmm. and it goes to very warm areas. So we got very lucky there. You uh, did. Other people that got stuck in, not that Tasmania's bad but they got stuck in Tasmania for the winter. It gets cold in Tasmania in winter. <laughs> <laughs> we know so many stories of cruises where husbands and wives haven't seen each other for two years now because they had separated while well, one went off visiting family or something and the other one didn't leave the boat unattended and we've got people that haven't been back to their boat for two years. They've just gone home to visit family and, and now they can't get back. And so I'm sure their bills are clocking up like crazy. It's really sad. Yeah. We had planned to go back and visit family in the UK and the US over Easter yeah, by air, yeah. and it looked like we could still do that but we were so nervous that if we did then we may never get back into Australia again so we didn't want to leave the boat so we cancelled all that unfortunately all assuming this was going to be a short kind of hiccup and now it's been uh, well over a year and, and look, yeah. looks like going right through to next year too so does, yeah. so you're just going to stay put until it's all over well I guess as long as Australia allows us in, there's a couple of complications. If we are here for three years, then technically they decide, well, you're not really visiting anymore. You've just moved here. So now you're importing the boat and owe duty on it. Um, they seem to be being very flexible about that and letting people extend that without paying the duty for now. We haven't quite hit the three-year period. That'll be in October this year, is it? No, that'll be two years in October. October next year. Okay, oh, so okay. hopefully we're good till then. And if we're still here then, hopefully there's they're remaining flexible. There's a lot of unknowns and a lot of keep filing for visas and exceptions and, and crossing our fingers and hope they get approved. And so far it's gone smoothly. But at some point, Australia is going to say, OK, well, now it's safe for you to leave. And then we'll have to work out, well, where are we? Where can we go? And what's the season? Is there a cyclone that we've got to pass through? So we'll have to like we're kind of expecting at some time. We're going to have to work all this out, but we're more than happy to stay here. We feel very safe. We're supporting the local economies. And, uh, yeah, long may it last, really. It's a beautiful place to be stuck. And warm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell me about the decision to circumnavigate Australia, which is something that I think must be just amazing. Well, we... 
we were originally sort of planning on leaving via Indonesia and then crossing the Indian Ocean. So, you know, going off the topic, crossing the Indian Ocean. So when COVID happened, we thought, well, we're not sure how long this is going to take. We'll just keep going that direction generally, see what happens. And then once we sort of got, you know, into far north Queensland, it became apparent that it would not be a good idea to be leaving. Our choice became, well, we can turn back and sort of bash our way to windward, back down the way we've, we've already come, or we could just keep going and try and go all the way around, because it should work out that by the time we get around to, you know, southwestern Australia, it'd be a good season to be going under the bottom, so we can come back around and try again next year. And we kept sort of Northern Territory open their border, where we got a permit for that, and then Western Australia we opened it wouldn't open it wouldn't open and finally we decided we're running out of time cyclone season's coming we're just going to have to bypass western australia entirely and sail from northern territory to south australia you know that's what we had planned to do when we left darwin and then we had a we had a rig failure that caused us to divert to exmouth and then they let us in we had quarantine and everything else they said well since you've been here you can stay <laughs> um and then we got to see some western australia too so it all worked mm-hmm. out very well for us mm-hmm. but carl has um a history of liking to circumnavigate places so when in our yes. early days of sailing even in the little sailing dinghy that he has he'd pick a little island and he'd want to sail all the way around it so his i think his first one was a little island called tippity witchity in the chesapeake bay in in the u.s and then just before we got to australia we we'd circumnavigated the new zealand which is something most people tend to not want to go that far south and um, we were feeling quite happy with ourselves. So when we had the opportunity to circumnavigate Australia and add that to his little list, <laughs> it was hard to stop him. <laughs> I have verified that it is bigger than New Zealand, despite what the Kiwis say. You, how long did it take you to circumnavigate Australia? I think all told it was about 14 months. That's a big trip. Yeah. The first trip down, we went down in the East Coast and then we circumnavigated Tasmania before we went to Lord Howe and everything. So by the time, I guess by the time we crossed our line again, in Tasmania, it had been 14 months since we'd been there before. Well, how did you find the trip under the south of the country? Because that can get a bit wild down there. Uh, yes, it's, well, I'd say generally the wind is pretty much double what's always forecast. <laughs> so, and it's cold, you know, but we can, we've been able to pick our weather windows pretty reasonably. And we had tailwinds for the most part. It's just, it wasn't the kind of sailing where you'd want to be out on deck and, you know, enjoy the sunshine. And it was very cold and we wrapped up the whole time. But it's beautiful down there. It's just beautiful country down there. It was well worth it. We've, yeah. we've done a lot of long distance passages. Our, our longest passage to date was 46 days at sea. So the prospect of spending a week at sea or whatever to cross that bite didn't seem so daunting. Perth is beautiful, isn't it? I, I know Perth quite well. It's a lovely place. Yeah, it's one of our favourites for sure. We took the boat to Fremantle, which is just outside Perth. And that was another really warm welcome, right? I mean, the the Fremantle Sailing Club famously gives all visiting yachts five nights for free when they arrive, and they're encouraged to kind of hang out and share their stories. A reasonable, reasonably okay walk into town to get the train into Perth, so you can have the city life and the, the kind of the small town feel as well. I mean, there's so many beautiful places. Did you go around Rottnest Island? <laughs> we did. Um, <laughs> I think we were at Rottnest Island for Christmas Day or something. Yeah, Christmas Boxing so Day. Yeah. It was, um, I guess that's the busy season. Um, and poor Kyle's back decided to play up then. So I got to explore most of it without him. But yeah, he obviously got to see the, the quokkas and just really enjoyed it. So what sort of places did you pull into on your trip around Australia? All sorts, really. We First, once we started heading north in Queensland, because of COVID, there was nobody there. So we had this kind of strange almost surreal experience of going to all these places 
where we didn't see another boat for a month. Uh, and we were the only visitor there. And it seemed like you know, a lot of the sea life was, you know, sort of not so weary of too much human contact as you'd expect, things like that. Some great experiences. We generally tend to avoid time in marinas. Some cruisers like to pick a marina and stay there for the season and like make that area their home. Um, we tend to like to find a quiet anchorage that nobody else frequents. Um, we tend to kind of seek out the, the peace and quiet rather than the, the kind of pubs and, and, yeah, and really both like so those social the way places. But of, of course, that doesn't mean we never go to marinas. It just means that when we do go to a marina, it's normally because we're going trying to connect with some mail or we've got a big load of laundry to get done or anything else. So normally when we arrive in a marina, it seems like all work and no play. And I can't wait to get back out to some kind of quiet island again. <laughs> that makes sense. That's just the way we choose to live our lives. But we tend to seek out like the, the places of beautiful nature, but deliberately. Um, and of course, there's lots of chunks of Australia where there isn't any communities and, and cities and towns and stuff. But places like Magnetic Island, I really wanted to go and I loved. I mean, I really loved it. Um, not just, I mean, for the walking and the koalas and the butterflies and the wildlife and the scenery, um, but just, you know, the little nice little cafes and doing stuff like that was cool. So do you have a home at all or do you have a, like a little flat somewhere or a mailbox? Uh, nothing, no. This is our only home. You know, I tell people we can only afford one, so we chose the boat. But we do have a, a mail service that collects our mail in the U.S. And some mail we have sent to relatives, things like that. But we have no, no permanent place to go back to. You know, a lot of people sort of ask, when are you going back or when are you going to be done? When the assumption seems to be that, you know, you've got a home that's under wraps somewhere they're going to eventually return to. And we don't have anything like that. And funny enough, we don't. I mean, although we expect at some point to return to a land-based life, we're not even sure what country we want that to be in. We haven't got any real firm plans yeah. for our future. So you haven't come across a place somewhere in your travels and thought, I could live here? Oh, we have, yeah, indeed. So <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there's still lots of other places that we haven't seen yet. That we, um, So we're not committing to anything. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about is a rather upsetting experience you had when you accidentally ran into a whale in the middle of the ocean. And I know that was very upsetting, particularly for you, Marianne, who've spent a lot of time studying and care so much about sea life. That was sort of on the same path as well, same uh, from Panama. Yeah, and we'd had a series of calm days and yada, yada. So a lot of really slow days. And we finally got started getting some wind and we had the spinnaker up and it was about 9.30 in the morning. And I was off watch in bed and Marianne was on watch and it was a bright sunny day, you know, plenty of good visibility and everything. And just hit a whale. Just... It's really hard to believe. I mean, if you if you come across dolphins in the water, you, you can see they actively seek you out. I mean, they, they see you and they come and find you. And then they swirl around in front of your bows and manage to avoid being hit and everything else. And, and like last minute darts. Whales, I mean, they're cetaceans, right? So you think they should have the same ability. But when a whale goes to sleep, they just sleep right below the surface. Just can You can barely see any of their body. And that's where they hang out. And while they're asleep, apparently they're not aware of boats approaching. Certainly, I mean, we're sailing, so we're not making a motor noise or anything else. So it was just a matter of us not seeing it and, and um, run yeah. over the top of it like a speed bump. Oh, from my birth, it, it felt like we hit another boat. I mean, it was something that was big and probably as heavy as our boat is. 
So, you know, there's kind of the normal wave motion. Then all of a sudden there's a big wham and another wham and I'm sort of half asleep thinking, what was that? But then, of course, you hear Marianne's voice and it's got that, you know, that certain sense of panic, like, Kyle, Kyle. And, you know, something really bad has happened. And I thought the mass has just come down. So, you know, something really awful has happened. And she's going, we hit a whale, we hit a whale. Get up here. Oh, no. So now we're, you know, I'm running around the boat, pulling up floorboards, seeing if we got water coming on board. She's looking at the whale it was very emotional for me because i mean i like most people i mean i love being in the water and having the marine life that i live i've got a degree in marine environmental biology and whales are just very special creatures so the the very thought that i had hurt one was crushing to me and i know i hurt it i mean first of all i ran over the poor thing um but then it popped up beside the boat with a big pool of blood um (sighs) Yeah, I was just basically crying. I mean, imagine if you're driving your car and a kid runs out in the middle of the road. It doesn't matter whether it's your fault or not. You, you, you're upset. And I was really upset. Mm. And Carl was all very practical and went, went around running, make sure there was no water coming on board. Well, the, the, sort of one of the bad things was since we had the spinnaker up, it wasn't as easy as just rounding up to stop the boat. It took us maybe a mile or so before we were finally able to get the sail down and the boat stopped. Meanwhile, we don't know what the condition of the boat is or how the condition of the whale is. Uh, the whale had a friend that kind of followed us and yeah. kept looking at Marianne. I swear. Oh, I mean, she's going, I'm sorry. I mean, I know there was the one whale I hit and, and I believe they were part of a couple or a pair of whales. I don't know if they were the same sex or whatever, but but one of them followed us some for some time after the incident and I, like followed us like literally like lifting its head out of the water and making eye contact with me and all i could do was apologize i was like i don't know what i can do say i'm sorry which does nothing of course and we were keeping a watch i was watching i was looking at the very patch of water that we hit the well and i saw nothing so well if it's just below the surface you wouldn't see it yeah but it, you kind of assume that if you do the right things these things shouldn't happen to you but clearly they can still happen and that's just a, a matter of bad luck so now you know whenever we're on a passage especially at night and i know there's whales around you can hear them spouting or whatever instead of being all excited like i used to be i kind of still get a bit freaked out it's like oh no go away whales go away <laughs> <laughs> The whale incident was just one of a handful of dramas that Marianne and Carl have faced over the years. In the next episode of Yachting Yarns, we discover how their first catamaran was written off in a storm, how they survived the devastating Hurricane Sandy in New York, what happened when they were caught in a tsunami alert, and how they almost lost everything off Tweed Heads in Australia. And don't forget, you can see some of Carl and Marianne's photos on the Yachting Yarns Facebook page. I'm Linda Woods. I'll see you next time.